0: Good morning brothers and sisters I invite you to take your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7 and we're going to start in verse 25 this morning. First Corinthians chapter 7 starting in verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealing with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. Now I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning In need of your grace to understand what you have said to us in your word. We pray that our hearts would be open to the Scriptures this morning, that you would change us, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ through the preaching of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in our midst as we lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40 is, in many ways, kind of a difficult text. Um, it's one of those texts when you read through it for the first time, you kind of left sitting there kind of scratching your head, right? I'm sure some of you, as we were reading some of these uh, sentences in, in this text, were going, huh, right? So I did too, don't worry. But I think by the, by the time we get done this morning, we will all have a clear idea of what is being communicated through the Apostle Paul. I want to start out by asking this question. This is for all of us in this room. If we were to pass from this world in 50 to 100 years from now, someone would to begin researching our life. Someone was to, uh, to start looking through our daily existence, look through our mail, look through, you know, how historians do, right? They just start digging. They start digging into every aspect of our lives. Talking to kids, talking to grandkids, talking to great-grandkids. Letters, Facebook posts, right? We we are going to be forever enshrined on the Internet thanks to social media. What would be said of us? What I mean by that, if someone was evaluating our lives, if someone was examining our daily existence, what would would start to kind of rise to the surface as the major motif of my life? If the biographer was combing through everything, combing through the letters, combing through... Uh, the things that we did, combing through all our pictures and, and records of what we've done with our lives and places we've went. Looked at our bank accounts, talked to our families. Would that person come to this conclusion? Wow. This individual was devoted to God. Because ultimately, as we work through this text, this is where this text is going. This text is taking us to a place where we come to the understanding, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are widowed or a widower, devote yourself to God. Over the past few weeks, we've been working through First Corinthians, and and Paul has been addressing wisdom and all kinds of issues. Wisdom and and how we approach church leaders and pastors. They had, they had people in Corinth who were picking guys. You know, I I follow Apollos, I I follow Cephas, I, I follow Paul, I follow Christ, and this is all worldly wisdom. There were divisions in the church, over who was wise and who was fools. And there were division in the church over um, sexual immorality, and there were, they were using wisdom of the world in regards to their sexual relationships and, and what was going on even inside their own church. In the past couple of weeks, we talked about lawsuits in the, in the congregation where, where worldly wisdom was coming into the fold of the people of God, and the people of God were taking each other to civil course. In arguments, in civil disputes, and Paul's like, have you not been defeated already? Last week, Pastor Toby talked about wisdom in 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 relationship to marriage and sexual relationships, how we're to behave in in our intimate relationships with our spouses, how we're to relate to our spouses if we're married to an unbeliever, how we're to relate to our spouses if we're married and we're in a difficult marriage, all of these different things, biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom, in all these different areas of life. And this week we come to the betrothed. If you look at the text, it says, verse 25, Paul says this, Now concerning... The betrothed. So he had received a letter from Corinth, and he started addressing some of the issues in, in the beginning of chapter seven, where he says, "Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he goes into all the marriage issues, now he turns him, his mind to the betrothed. And there were debates going on in the Church of Corinth about what were betrothed people supposed to do. There were different opinions and different forms of worldly wisdom that were coming into the church, forms of asceticism like Pastor Toby talked about last week, where they were giving this hyper-spiritualized superhero spiritual status to those who were denying themselves physical pleasure. And celibacy was being exalted as some kind of super-spiritual trait. And so the Corinthians are starting to wonder, should young people get married? Should those who are of marriable age tie the knot? Or should we all just remain single and be celibate for the rest of our lives? And this is the question that Paul is addressing in the text. And if a betrothed woman, marries, she has not sinned. Paul here in the text says, I have no command from the Lord. What he's saying is, is that Jesus in his earthly life never spoke directly to this issue like the issue that we discussed last week. Instead, what we have here in this text is the divinely inspired pastoral guidance on how you should make the decision to get married or not. That's what we have. And in this text, Paul encourages those who are not married to remain as they are. And that's surprising, isn't it? So he says, if you have gotten married already, stay married. But if you are still unmarried, I think you should stay that way. However, he makes the concession If you do marry, you don't sin. Now, I feel like for most of us, we read that text, and that's surprising, isn't it? Really? Are you really telling Christians that it's better for you not to get married? Well, let's look at the reasons for a minute. Paul's reasons. The first thing I want to say is that there is one thing that is not a reason. The Apostle Paul is not anti-marriage. Right? We know this. He, he, the Apostle Paul is the one that wrote Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his savior. he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul recognizes the beauty of marriage, that, that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Moses says in Genesis 2 that it is not good for a man to be alone. And I will make a helper Fit for him, So God creates Eve, brings Eve to Adam, and Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. Flesh. Why do I say all this? Because scripturally marriage is a beautiful thing. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is the pattern of life that God intended for his people. Yet, here we have Paul saying, I prefer you remain single. As a result, our understanding from a hermeneutical perspective, our interpretation of the text, our understanding of this text, must be consistent with the full counsel of God. As we dig into the text, I want to say this, that Paul is writing a letter to a group of believers in a very specific context that are facing very specific situations and circumstances. Right? When we think about the, 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 the epistles of Scripture, right, They are all occasional. Every letter that is written in the New Testament was written by an apostle to a specific church or to a specific group of churches that were dealing with very specific situations. Correct? So our understanding of those epistles has to be rooted in those situations, in the historical context. As a result, it is incumbent upon us to understand as best we can the the cultural issues of the day, what is happening. So here's reason number one. The first reason that Paul gives for this advice, for a person to remain as he is, is found in verse 28, verse 28, where he says, Those who marry will have worldly trouble, and I would spare you that. So why is Paul telling betrothed people in Corinth in the first century that it is better for them to remain as they are? Because if they get married, they will have worldly troubles. And the heart of Paul, as their father in the faith, is to spare them that is to spare them that difficulty. What are worldly troubles? The idea of troubles here is from the word flipsis, and what it means is that there, the, there are outward pressures, and, and the idea of being pressed together, being squeezed, that those who marry will be squeezed and pressed and, and pressurized, like stressed upon, Right? Like, there's, an, there's a, a stress that comes with marriage that single people do not experience. I mean, it is incontrovertible, is it not, that when we get married and start having kids, worldly troubles escalate. Do they not? <laughs> I mean, love you children out there. We love you all. But if you're looking for a life of ease, having children is not the way to go, my friend. Right? Marriage and children create pressure and worldly trouble. Marriage is loaded with responsibilities and demands that are not present in the single life. This is just matter-of-fact stuff, isn't it? Nevertheless, these are wonderful things. These are gifts from God. We we all recognize that. But look at verse, verse 26. Because Paul is speaking of something specific here. In this specific context, he's saying that I think that in view of this present distress... that in view of this present distress, that it's good for you to remain as you are. Paul seems to indicate that there are some extenuating circumstances that would greatly increase worldly trouble right now. There's some debate as to what this is. What we do know is that 1 Corinthians was written somewhere 53 to 54 AD. We know from the Study of Asia Minor in the first century that famine was sweeping the land and was stretching across much of the known world at the time. We also know from history that within 10 years of the writing of this letter, Neronian persecution of believers broke out across the Roman Empire. Nero's persecution of the church was brutal. It seemed quite reasonable to think that Paul had a good idea of what was coming for the church in the coming year. Listen to what MacArthur says. MacArthur says, Paul seemed to sense the coming terrible Roman persecution, the first which would begin under Nero some 10 years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. That emperor refined torture to a diabolical art, and his name became synonymous with sadistic cruelty. In other words, when you hear the word Neronianism, what are we talking about? We're talking about the brutal torture of people. Nero had Christians sewn up in animal skins and thrown before wild dogs to be torn apart and tied and eaten. Other believers were dressed in clothes soaked in wax and tied to trees and set on fire to become human candles for his garden. In fact, one of the first accounts of martyrdom that we read in Fox's Book of the Martyr is is Erastus who was the treasurer in Corinth. When Neronian persecution broke out In the Roman Empire, it was a terrible time for Christians. Hundreds of thousands of Christians died at the hands of the Roman Empire, single and married alike. As you can imagine, if you were a single person and the Roman soldiers came into your town to persecute believers there, as a single person, it was easier to flee. I mean, try to put yourself there. As a single person, you see these folk coming and it's time to get out of town. You're by yourself. You take off. You're gone. But what about the family? What about the man whose wife is pregnant and he has six children under the age of seven years old? See where he's going with that? I think in view of the present distress, it would be good for you to remain as you are. You know, I'm a, I'm a church history buff. And one of the things about Neronian persecution was that they were brutal, brutal people. And their cruelty was sadistic. And there were times when the, the Roman persecutors would take wives and children and make them watch the torture of their fathers and their husbands. One commentator says this, that there are many a men who are heroes in and of themselves that become cowards when they think of their wives being widows and their children being orphans. See, Paul tells us that he knows the appointed time has grown very short. Look at the end of verse 31. This present form of this world is is passing away. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. And Paul says, I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. Verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as, as, as though they had no dealing with it. How are we to understand that? Paul has just said, let those who have wives live as though they had none. This is hyperbolic language. All five of these statements are hyperbolic language. And hyperbolic language is used throughout the Scripture to emphasize a point. It's a literary device. The authors of Scripture use hyperbole as a literary device to grab your attention, and it does, doesn't it? What did he just say? Did he really just say, act like you don't have a wife? How does that work? Yeah, he just said that. How do we know something is hyperbolic language? Well, one one principle you can use is this. If the statement that you're reading directly conflicts with something that is taught in the the rest of Scripture, then they're using hyperbole, right? The Scripture clearly teaches husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church. Another example of this is what Jesus does in Luke chapter 14. He uses hyperbole. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and hate his own mother, and hate his wife, and hate his children, and hate his brothers and sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus teaching us to hate our wives? To hate our parents. To hate our brothers and sisters. No. He's making a point. Matthew 10 gives us the literal sense, whoever loves father and or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You see that? And whoever loves son or daughter more than me. Is not worthy of me. That's what he's really saying. And the text that we're reading this morning is saying the exact same thing. Paul is saying, listen, our wife, our marriage, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, is temporary. Mourning, as hard and as gut-wrenching and as deep as mourning is, praise God, is temporary. Rejoicing, as much joy as rejoicing brings and as much uh, wonderful things that we can experience in this life, guess what? It's only temporary. Don't rejoice too much in this world, folks. Worldly goods and possession, they're blessing from God, but guess what? Moth and rust destroy. Listen, what Paul's saying here, the, this hyperbolic language that he's using to get our attention is what he is saying is all of these things are transient. All of these things are temporary. All of these things are passing away. Therefore, these things our wife, our mourning, our rejoicing, our possession, all of this stuff, all of the things in this world cannot be preeminent. Cannot be preeminent. That the primary devotion of the human heart must be God and must be God alone. That's what he's saying. You know, as we think about devotion to our wives, right, right, men? What makes a husband the best husband possible? You want to be the best husband you can possibly be? Devote yourself fully to God. You want to be the best wife you can possibly be? Devote yourself fully to God. Our devotion, brothers and sisters, this is so important. Our devotion to God must absolutely must supersede our devotion to anything else. So the first reason Paul gives is to spare us worldly trouble. The second reason I want to to show to you is that he wants to secure our undivided devotion to God. God. He wants to secure our undivided devotion to God. Look at verse 32 with me. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 35. I am saying this to you, brothers and sisters, for your own benefit. If you're a single person out there that's thinking about getting married right now, listen to what Paul's saying here. I am saying this for your benefit. I am not saying this to lay an unnecessary restraint or weight upon you. I am saying this for your benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. And here it is, to secure. This is his motive. I want to secure your undivided devotion to God. Here's the reality. It is easier for a single person to live their life in single-minded devotion to the Lord. You know, when I first became a Christian at 19 years old, I read my entire Bible in eight days. In eight days. How did I do that? I didn't have any bills, right? I didn't have any responsibilities. Mom and dad were feeding me. It was great, right? I went in my bedroom, opened my Bible and started reading and then went to bed later that night. Eight days. Now I'm lucky to get through three verses before I have a little pinky poking me right here in this eye, <laughs> all right? This is the reality of life. It's the reality of life. You just have less responsibility and less demands on you when you're single. And Paul's saying here that this is a gift. That if you're a single person and you have freedom and time and energy, that it is a gift and it's an opportunity to just give your life with complete undivided devotion to the things of God. And that's a beautiful thing. However, being single does not mean that you're devoted, right? Being single does not mean that you're devoted. There is a, in our culture today, there is a selfish motive for being single. Is there not? You talk to folk and it's like, huh? I ain't never getting married. You know, I ain't gonna have that old ball and chain following me around. You know, Right? I mean, that's the, that's the idea of the culture. I'm never having any kids. I don't want all that responsibility. That is not, a godly motive for staying single. In any way, shape, or form, friend. What Paul's talking about here, what he is, is lifting up here is the person who chooses to stay single in order to devote themselves wholly and completely in service to God. At the same time, married folks, that does not mean that we can't be devoted to God, does it? No, it does. It doesn't. What it means is it's more difficult to be devoted to the Lord in our daily life. It's harder. Because there's more challenges. There's more things pressing for your time Nevertheless, married folks have the obligation, just like singles, to devote their life to the Lord as well. Amen? Amen. Amen. But it's more challenging. One commentator says this, "There must be balance." And he's talking about married folks. There must be a scriptural balance between fulfilling marriage needs and serving the kingdom of God. The primary affections of all Christians, whether married or single, should be set on things above and not on things of earth. Amen? Here's the issue for the married folks in the room. Here's the issue. It is very easy for things that are good, things that are right in marriage to take the wrong place in the heart, to take the throne. I want to take a minute and just ask Those of us in this room, married and single, what is the goal? If you're married, what is the goal of your marriage? What are you trying to accomplish as a couple? Has this even been a topic of discussion lately? Where are we going? Why are the two of us together? Why has God brought the two of us together and made us one? As we think about that question, only every individual in this room knows the answer to those questions, right? What, what are we aiming at? Husbands and wives, are the two of you together aiming at things that glorify God? Here's why we're here. Here's the focus. This is the reason that God has put me with this person is to accomplish these things for the glory of Jesus. Or are we just working toward temporary things? Are we just Looking forward to the next trip, the next thing we're going to put in our house, the the next vehicle we're going to buy, the next toy we're going to get. I don't know. Here's the question right now in my marriage, if you're both believers, in my marriage, are we working together toward things that will build the kingdom of Christ? single folks, what are you doing with your singleness? Are you taking advantage of this season of life where you have more time? I know you don't believe it. I remember being single and thinking, oh man, I've got college classes. Oh man, I've got to work 12 hours a week. Right? I remember being that person. How am I ever going to do it? And I look back at that person and I just laugh. (laughs) Right? What are we doing with our time? Take this season of life, rejoice in it, and use it for the glory of God. All right, let's look at Paul's pastoral council for a minute. Paul's pastoral council. So he's laid these principles out. Now, I just want you to imagine there's a room full of betrothed people here, marriable age, and they're still sitting there thinking, man, should I get married or not? Right? Because that's what he's dealing with. Well, let's look. Paul says this, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. The idea of not behaving properly you're convinced that staying unmarried is not the right thing to do. You may feel that you're harming the other person, or the other person is, is not happy with that arrangement. You know, you you have someone that you're betrothed to, and she longs to be married to you. That plays a part in this decision. This certainly denotes that temp- temptation for sexual immorality is strong. Passions are strong is the second thing. He has strong desire for his betrothed, which is perfectly normal. And Paul's saying, listen, if you are looking at this situation, you're saying this is not the right thing for me not to get married. You have strong desire to marry this beautiful woman that you love so much and it has to be, you're under necessity, then get married. Get married. In other words, this hyper-spiritual view of asceticism and celibacy that infiltrated the church that's trying to prevent you from enjoying the gift of marriage, throw it out. Singleness is not a gift that we all have, amen? Uh Uh-huh. Get married. That phrase there, it has to be, has to do with necessity. There there are, imagine this situation. You're, You're a man, you're betrothed to a woman, and she is alone. She has no family. Her parents are gone. And you don't marry her, she's destitute. Paul saying, marry that woman and love her and take care of her. Right? And it's a beautiful thing. And it honors God. But if you have firmly established in your heart, look at the text, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, But having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. In other words, this person has firmly established in his own heart. It's not outward, unbiblical pressure being pressed in on him. No, it's an inward conviction of his heart. that I'm going to stay single to devote myself solely to the kingdom of God. And his passions are under control. His desire is under control. And he's under no necessity to marry or not to marry. Then by all means, remain single. You know, we worship a God who came as a man and lived his life for 33 years single. And this single man, who is the only person to live his entire life with perfect, undivided devotion to God die for people like us who fail every day to devote ourselves to God. And not only that, if we were to trace the line of Gray Road Baptist Church all the way to the beginning, I have a hunch that the Apostle Paul is in there somewhere. The Church of Jesus Christ would not exist without a single man, the Lord Jesus And this church right here, Gray Road Baptist Church, most likely would not exist without a single man, the ministry of a single man, the Apostle Paul, preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel, writing half of the New Testament, giving us God's Word, I say all that to say that singleness is a glorious thing when it is used for the glory and devotion of God. And church, we need to keep that in mind. If we have folks in our congregation that are single, we need to rejoice in what God is doing with those single individuals because they're doing things that we can't do. They're serving in ways that we can't serve. They're loving in ways that we can't love. And we should praise God for them, shouldn't we? Praise God. And if you're out there and you're a single person, we see you. And we are thankful to God for what you're doing in our congregation. Paul finishes up this section of scripture with verse 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only that they be in the Lord. Now, Paul says this, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Now, why does he say that? Because of all the stuff we just talked about. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. And I just want to say something to our widows. This church knows who you are. And we mourn with you. And grief is hard, it's really hard. And we know that you are suffering. but I want to encourage you just as Paul has said in this text, let those who mourn live as though they are not mourning. What's he saying? Is that Jesus is better and he is greater. And we're going to suffer in this life for a time. For a season. And when you wake up in the morning, throw yourselves upon the mercy of Christ and devote your life to Him. Serve Jesus with everything you have, even in your grief. And I can promise you this, as we serve Jesus in our grief, as we honor him while we mourn, he will bring joy. So then, brothers and sisters, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So, friends, whether you are single or married, devote yourself to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We recognize the reality that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where things don't always go our way and things are hard there are so many things in life that can so easily ensnare us and entangle us. And we ask for your help. We ask for your grace, Lord, that we would live lives of devotion. That you would use us for your glory. Lord, that you would help us repent where we need to repent and that you would encourage us and where we are doing well. We pray, Lord, that this church would be full of single and married people who are fully devoted to the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.